We are going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and our style of teaching here is we walk through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've gotten to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Last week, Lloyd covered the first seven verses. Today, I'm going to cover verses 8 through 20. And if you missed last week, I know we say this a lot, but if you missed last week, you've got to go listen. Uh, I told Lloyd this uh, this week, and I don't say this every time. I mean, I, I love Lloyd's teaching, but I don't say this every time. I think last week's message was one of those seminal sermons in fellowship, uh, fellowship's history. Now, why would I say that? There wasn't anything flashy. We didn't have like 30 people get baptized or anything like that. But there was a clear and simple message that came from the text from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and it was this. To hear God is to obey God. And where that came from was this very common, simple, yet rich Hebrew word, shema, which means hear. And it's in the text last week, and Lloyd said, you know what, there's not a separate word for obey. They, the Hebrews, and they wrote the Bible, they used the word shema for hear and obey. So you can't separate the two. So to hear God is to obey God. That was the big idea of this message. And all of us as, you know, those of us that are parents, you kind of identify with that because, you know, you ask your kid to do something, and when they don't do it, the next question out of your mouth is, did you not hear me? You know, there's this assumption by those in authority that to hear is to obey. And that's the Hebrew perspective when they think about God. And what a weighty but significant message for us as a church because we want to be the kind of church that hears from God's word. And that's why we teach the Bible the way we do. And the kind of church that lives God's word, the kind of church that lives it out. So hearing God's word, obeying God's word together. In fact, he said this statement that just sort of just, stunned me and and I had to I was I was driving listening to the podcast and I, I I didn't pull over but I could have here's what he said the sacrifice of fools and that's a phrase that was used in last week's text the sacrifice of fools is to go through the motions of faith with a heart that is far from faith so when I heard that I, I was first convicted for me because that's me sometimes I can get a, I can sing I can go through the motions of faith I can do the Christian thing you know, it's, I'm a professional Christian. Like, I'm paid to be a Christian, right? I can go through the motions of faith with a heart that is far from faith. I can do that. I thought about our area. We're in the Bible Belt. I think there's a lot of people going through the motions of faith without a heart of faith. I, I thought about our own church and this burden I have for us that may it not be for us, that we, may we not be a people to go through the motions of faith with a heart that is far from faith. So we must remember each week as we come under the authority of God's word that to hear and obey are one and the same thing. All right, that was last week. I didn't mean to re-preach his sermon, but I couldn't help it. Uh, let me finish out chapter five. So we're going to start in verse eight. We're going to go through 20. And here's how I want to introduce this text. It's an interesting text. You already heard part of it read by Lindsay. You know, it's got a lot of conviction in it. Um, but here's what I find uh, interesting. I want to use this analogy uh, raise your hand if you've ever been to the Dead Sea. Like you've actually like seen it with your own eyes, the Dead Sea. Okay, so not very many people, but uh, maybe a dozen of you or so, maybe uh, 15 in the room. All right, let me put some pictures of the Dead Sea. You've all heard of the Dead Sea. You probably know a couple things about it. You might know that it's the lowest point on earth. It's 1,400 feet below sea level. You might also know that it's one of the saltiest bodies of water on earth. Not the saltiest, but it's close to it. It has a 34% saline content. Now, that may not sound incredibly high until you realize that the average ocean is 3.5%. So the Dead Sea is almost 10 times as much when it comes to salt content. Now, the implications of that is nothing can live in that water. 
Like it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. There's no fish. There's no, you know, I don't know what else would be in there. Crustaceans of some kind. Or There's not even any algae, bacteria. There's nothing. It's just a dead zone. In fact, you can see all the area around it. It's just a desert region. There's no like towns and cities around there. There's a few hotels for people to come and, you know, soak in the water. By the way, there's one other fun thing about the water is that the buoyancy is different because of all the saline content. So as this next picture will show you, you can float. And uh, you may not recognize that guy, you know, look at all smooth, um, you know, reading a, a theology book in the Dead Sea, the, the, the nerd that he is, but that is me. And uh, that was from a couple of years ago. And, and that, believe it or not, that's deep water. Like, and that wasn't like the second in time that I stopped, you know, um, um, treading water. No, you can just sit there all day long and uh, just read the newspaper or read a book floating around the Dead Sea. Okay, let's take that picture off <laughs> quickly. And let me show you this map. Now, you might be wondering, why is the Dead Sea dead? Like, why, what happens? Like, why is the saline constant so high in it? Here's what happens. So th this is a map of Israel. You see the Jordan River right there in the middle. It flows down north to south. It goes down into the Dead Sea. Now, because it's that low point, it's almost like a bowl. And so it collects all the water with Jordan River's fresh collects all the water from the Jordan River, goes down into the Dead Sea, has nowhere else to go. There's no outlet on the other side. So it just collects like a big puddle, all right? So, so think of a, a big bowl that collects all this. What happens is as the water's flowing down, and this happens all over the world with any water, as it moves across rocks and other things, it's, it's picking up little elements that then combine to become salt. So that's why the oceans are salty as well from river runoff. The reason why the Dead Sea is so incredibly salty is the water has nowhere else to go. So it just sits there. Then what happens? The sun evaporates. What's left behind? The, the, the sediment, the particles, the salt. And so more water, fresh water flows in, evaporates. You got more salt. More evaporation, more salt, because it has nowhere to go. All that salt is left behind. And yes, if you're thinking, if you're following this, it is getting more and more salty you know, slowly getting more and more salty. By the way, the crazy amount of evaporation, 438 million gallons of water a day is evaporated and leaving behind that salty sediment. Now, th think of this. In the desert, water's the most precious resource. It's meant to bring life. This one's a death zone. When it comes to water, the Dead Sea is a hoarder. It takes, it takes, it takes, it never gives. It just collects, it accumulates. And because of that, it can't sustain any life and everything around it dies. So I just imagine, you know, early explorers or maybe like conquering armies from different empires passing through this region, which, you know, they, they would have very frequently. And they're going through the desert. They, you know, think they're going to die. There's so few water sources. And they see in the distance this great vast body of water and they get all excited, you know. Is it a mirage? They get a little closer. No, it's real. It's glimmering. They get up there and they just start drinking and then they got to spit it all out. It's the most important resource yet at least in the case of the Dead Sea, it's a death zone. I think this is a picture of what a life looks like that's given over to the pursuit of more. Now, we live in a time and place where more is a really big deal, right? We live in a culture. I mean, it's not just out there, it's in here too. It's like all of us want just a little bit more. More money, more success, more choices, more entertainment, more leisure, more convenience, more enjoyment, more happiness. This is just part of the human condition. We always want 
that next little step. And so Solomon recognizes this. And, you know, he lived in his own culture, in his own society, but they had the same problem. And so what Solomon says essentially in this text is be careful that you don't give your life to that. Be careful that you don't make your entire existence about accumulation, about funneling more and more into containers because it's all gonna eventually just evaporate. And as it evaporates, all it will leave behind is some residue picked up along the way. And it will not sustain your life. That's the big idea of the text. There is no life in the pursuit of more. Whether you're talking about money or whether you're talking about you know, career success or comfort, you know, we're all driven toward these different things. There's no life in the pursuit of more. So there's the sermon, okay? And you can zone out the rest of the way, you know. <laughs> you won't hurt my feelings at all. But I don't want to leave it there, actually. We're going to walk through this text verse by verse. You're going to see that theme played out. But we're also going to get to some answers. So the text is going to break down kind of f- fairly cleanly in three sections. First section, the curse of more. Why is more so bad? Like, what's, what's killing us in, in all of our sort of pursuit of, of, of bigger, better, more? That's going to be verses 8 to 12. Second section, a story of more. Solomon takes a time out and gives us a little parable to kind of illustrate this. This is verses 13 to 17. And then he's going to end with the solution to more in verses 18 to 20, the solution to more, which I have actually titled A More Better Way. All right, so here's what we're going to do is we're going to jump in, the curse of more. We're going to start with uh, these first two verses, 8 to 9. Let's take a look at it in our text. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. A little bit of confusing... um, Ideas going on in here. Let me explain what I think Solomon's getting after. One of the results of human nature's obsession with more is that society inevitably develops a tiered system. There are levels. There are the haves and there are the have-nots. And actually, more particularly, there are the have-nots and then there are the uh, almost have-nots and then there have a little bit more than the almost have-nots and then all the way up to the guy at the very top, the, the king in this particular context. Here's what Solomon is saying. Don't be surprised when you see those with power taking advantage of those below them because that's how life works under the sun, which remember is life on a fallen planet, life living on this cursed earth where things are not the way they're supposed to be. The ones above take advantage of the ones below. And so don't be surprised if you're being taken advantage of, because guess what? The one that's taking advantage of you has someone above them taking advantage of them, and it goes all the way up to the king. Now, verse 9 is a little confusing. Um, The Hebrew is perplexing. And uh, there's a lot of debate on how to interpret verse 9. And there aren't many verses like this in the Bible. But every now and then you come across one that modern scholars just don't know uh, what to do with. Because, you know, modern Hebrew is a lot of differences with ancient Hebrew. And so we don't know how to interpret some of the verb tense that's going on in verse 9. There are two ways it could go. I won't spend long on this. It's a little technical. But one way it could go is to say the king is an advantage to the land. That's how the NASB takes it. Another way you can go, however, is to say the land is an advantage to the king. And I think most likely, based on the context, that may be a better rendering of this verse. If so, here's how it might read. And this is actually how the New International Version translates it. Take a look at verse 9 in the NIV. 
The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Uh, it, you know, it could go either way, but I, that makes sense to me because the context of the passage is everybody has a boss above them and sitting at the very top is the king. Everybody is taking advantage of everyone else all the way down to the laborer that's working in the field. So here's the big idea of these two verses. Everyone naturally tends to step on those below them as they climb the ladder of more. This goes all the way to the top. Everyone tends to naturally, sometimes not even intentionally, but we all tend to naturally step on those below us as we climb the ladder to the top. Very brief application. I can't miss this. God is constantly calling his people in the scripture to a higher way. Both Old and New Testaments, dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, you get this message as the people of God that it should not be that way for us. We should not be stepping on those below us. We should actually be fighting for justice, fighting for equality. We should actually be agents of justice serving those below us. Uh, and, and I know this gets sometimes complicated to live out because we get confused. We get confused between Political issues, individual issues, biblical issues. I just want to make a clear point without saying you know, any, any, any more than I have to here. God would not want us to get so entangled in all the confusion of, of well, that's a political issue or that's someone else's job. The clear biblical principle here is that we are to reach down and help those below us. That's what God keeps telling his people over and over and over. Oppression should not be something that the people of God are involved in. What do we do about that? It's complicated, isn't it? Particularly in our day and age where there's so much division. Here's what I would like us to do. Pray. Ask God how he would call us to engage and what areas he would call us to engage in. Then when we hear from God through his word, what do we do? We obey. We obey. Going back to last week's message. All right, I I couldn't skip over that. I think it's important and I, I want us to move on though. We're still in this general category of the curse of more. And the next three verses are going to identify the three problems with more. And this is interesting for me. One problem for ver- perverse, uh, perverse, that sounded, came out weird, perverse. <laughs> and uh, we'll start with the first problem in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. So the first problem with quote unquote more is that more is never satisfied. Notice the word love. It's mentioned two different times in the verse. Those who, you know, he who loves money, he who loves abundance. When you love something, you desire it, so you seek after it. What Solomon is saying is money and abundance and I think those have some overlap, but they're, they're two separate things in a way. Money and abundance will never return your love. It's going to be a, a story of unrequited love if you give yourselves to these things. In fact, the problem with more is that you can't ever have it because it's always out there, right? The definition of more is what you don't have in your hand, so you're always chasing something. It's like almost like a dog chasing its tail. Like you're actually never getting any closer to it. It's, think of a thirsty person drinking salt water to quench their thirst. The love of more creates a desire that can't be met. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The desire itself creates the dissatisfaction. 
That's the first lesson or the first problem we learn about more is more can never be satisfied. The second problem with more is in verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Now, when I first read that first sentence in there, I couldn't help but think of our expanding waste lines. <laughs> when good things increase, those who consume them increase. And I was like, oh, sadly true, you know. Uh, but I don't think that's exactly what Solomon is going after here. What he's essentially saying, and here's the second problem with more, is that more collection creates more consumption. Right? That's just a principle. More collection creates more consumption. More input means more output. The more you have, the more resources it takes to sustain it and manage it all. Business owners, you know this to be so true. I mean, I've talked to so many entrepreneur business owners that look back to their early days and they're like, man, if I'm honest, like those were kind of the glory days. I wasn't maybe making as much money, but I didn't have any employees, you know, didn't have a whole lot of systems. Didn't, I wasn't encumbered down by the whole, you know, structures of business. You know, that's not always true, but it's often true. I think about my own life. It's so interesting. You know, Jody and I have had different levels of income. I was in the business world for a while, and that was one standard of living. Then I, we sold our house and moved to, became a poor seminary student in Dallas for a while, and that was a whole different standard of living. And then, you know, income raises and lowers, but what I found is our standard of living kind of keeps up with it for better or worse. And so there's sort of no gain at the end of the day. This is what Solomon is essentially saying. More collection creates more consumption. Think about the Dead Sea. Why doesn't the Dead Sea grow if that water is constantly coming in with no outlet on the other end? The evaporation. So it did grow at some point, you know, long time ago to the place that it reached an equilibrium because the larger it grew, the more... Evaporation happened as the surface area of that body of water increased. So it reached a point of equilibrium where the intake was equal to the outtake. Now, by the way, the last 50, 60 years, it's been shrinking dramatically because the flow coming down from the Jordan is much less than it used to as Israel has siphoned off for irrigation and other purposes. So there's a little bit of a, of a crisis going on, sinkholes and other things that are being formed in this area. But it's an illustration of Solomon's principle. The more input, the more output. The less input, the less output. And so do you ever really get anywhere at the end of the day? More collection creates more consumption. So verse 10, more is never satisfied. Verse 11, more collection creates more consumption. Final problem of more is in verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Uh, here's an example of a proverb in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there are a number of them, which makes sense if it's you know, Solomon's wisdom or Solomon's voice being represented here. Uh, this is an interesting one if you dig down into it because what he's essentially saying is being rich is not always what it's cracked up to be. Uh, there's two ways you can take this sleep problem. It could be that the trouble is from stress. It could be that the trouble is from overeating, indigestion. Either way, it's the same idea. Um, the more you have, this is problem number three with more, the more you have, the less you rest. That's just sadly true for most of us. The more we have, the less we rest. There's more to keep up with. There's more to think about. There's, there's, there's more stress that we have, the less we rest. Uh, I think it's interesting, as our standard of living in this country has dramatically increased um, in recent decades, do you know what has dramatically decreased? Sleep. Our um, national sleep debt 
you think of it that way, is approaching crisis levels. A few years ago, the Center for Disease Control actually labeled insufficient sleep as a public health epidemic. That's the word that the CDC chose, epidemic over a lack of sleep. Now, obviously, there's a lot of reasons for sleep trouble, and I'm sure many of us in the room have sleep trouble. And I'm, I'm not just saying, look, you have sleep trouble because you have too much money. You know, it's not quite that simple. There's a lot of reasons, another, you know, sleep apnea and other health issues and things. But I just find it interesting that in light of this verse, this proverb written 3,000 years ago or so, I find it interesting that we've never been wealthier as a nation and we've never had so much trouble sleeping as a nation. Very interesting to me. So three problems in these three verses with more. This is the curse of more. More is never satisfied. More collection creates more consumption. The more you have, the less you rest. So big idea of these verses is if you go after more, if you give your life to that either intentionally or just sort of unintentionally, you're giving your life to more, better, bigger, you're never going to actually get what you really want. And we've got all kinds of people at the top telling us this, you know, like movie stars and football quarterbacks and really wealthy people that look down and say, there's got to be more than this, right? But until we feel it, until we experience it, it's hard to believe sometimes. Listen to those voices. More importantly, listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking through this text. The curse of more. Now, uh, the teacher's going to move on from there to give us an illustration. So, so this next section is a story of more. It's a little parable. And we'll read the whole thing and then we'll talk about it a bit. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will not take anything from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, is, this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what's the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. This is the tragedy of a life wasted. Wasted. Now, why do we call it wasted? Solomon calls it a grievous evil. Here you have a man who, who spends his whole life accumulating things. He works very, very hard. You know, probably the reference there at the end to, you know, eating in the darkness is, is he, he gets home late at night from the fields or from the factories, business, you know, whatever he is. I guess they didn't have factories back then. And uh, he, he's, he's eating at night once the sun has got down and he's worn out and tired and there's vexation. He gives his life to this for, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years or so. And then there's a terrible investment. It all goes away and he's left with the same thing that he started. What has he gained? He's not gained anything, Solomon is saying. Now, the temptation is to think that can't happen to me because I'm diversified. All right. And some of you, that's exactly where it went. It's like that example doesn't apply to me. Like we're spread out. We're good to go. Um, Did you miss verse 16? Verse 16, what Solomon essentially says is just in case you think this doesn't apply to you, there is a catastrophic turn coming for every single one of us. It's called death. Death evens the playing field. Like death is, is it, I'll say it this way, death is the great event in every life that unmasks the wisdom of your investments. How did you spend your life? Everybody will find out when you die. 
It unmasks the wisdom of your investments. That turn is coming for you, regardless of what your portfolio has in it. You can't take any of it with you. All the pieces go back in the box at the end of the game. You understand? And some of you are thinking, well, at least I'll have something to, to give to my son or daughter or grandkids or whatever. Until they waste it. Until they squander it. Until they lose it in an investment. You see, this is Solomon's point. If you've spent your life pursuing more, you've made a poor investment. You've made a poor investment. You've been, as Solomon would say, chasing the wind. Ay, ay, ay. Right? This is all of us to a degree. For some of you, it's money. For others of you, it's other things. For me, it's just, it's not necessarily money, but it's other things. We've got this in us, this desire for more. We talked about the curse of more. We've seen a story of more. Now let's move on to some answers. A more better way. Verses 18 to 20. We'll finish out the chapter. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Verse 19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of heart. So here we have yet another example in this book of the carpe diem theme you know, carpe diem, Latin, seize the day. And six times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us, seize the day. Eat and drink and enjoy what you have. And so, um, you know, theologians call these the carpe diem passages of Ecclesiastes. This one's particularly interesting because God is mentioned so many times. God is the key character in these last three verses of the chapter. He suddenly shows up in a significant way. Um, we won't put him back on the screen, but I want to show you how God is involved throughout these three verses. In verse 18, God is the one who gives us life. In verse 19, God's the one who gives us every material thing we have. And also in verse 19, the one who gives us the ability to enjoy them. You know, you can have things, but not enjoy them. If you, are, if you have things and are enjoying them, it's God that's given you the things and the ability to enjoy them. And in verse 20, God is the one this is beautiful. Who can occupy us with gladness of heart. God is the one who can occupy us with gladness of heart. Now, all throughout Ecclesiastes, we've been wrestling with this tension. We know that Solomon can't see the whole picture. You know, we talked about the idea of progressive revelation, that God revealed his plan over time and stages. So when Solomon wrote this, there was only hints of what salvation would look like long term through a savior through Messiah. But as far as Solomon knew, death was the end. Like there's no promise. There are hints maybe, but no promise, you know, definitively of what comes beyond death and how that would all work out. So what Solomon is saying with his good, you know, Hebrew theology a thousand years before Christ is saying, given that death seems to be the inevitable end for every single person, given that God has given us gifts, we look to him as the giver, the best we can do in this life is to enjoy what God has given these few years of our life and hope that we'll be so occupied with the gifts of God that we won't have to worry that our days are coming to an end. All right, so on the one hand, it sees the day. On the other hand, it's kind of like, because you may not have that many days. 
There's this tension in this. And, and we want to present the text as it is. And here's the text. I might pause and summarize the message of the teacher throughout the whole book from chapter 1 to chapter 5. Okay, we're almost at the halfway point of this book. And let me summarize, uh, I think, the message of Solomon. Here it is. Life under the sun does not make sense. It is a vapor. It's here, then it's gone. It's vanity. There's no lasting substance or meaning because, and here's the reason why all that's true, everything ends in death. I don't know that we've taught a sermon in this series where death was not a part of the text. Everything ends in death. Remember, this book is sort of Solomon beating his fists against the wall of death saying, is there any other way? And he's finding from his perspective, there doesn't seem to be. So what he says is, Receive the life that God has given as a gift from God. Eat, drink, enjoy, receive life as a gift from God. Several weeks ago, Lloyd quoted uh, an, another commentary, a guy named Ian Proven, summarizing the message of Ecclesiastes with this phrase. And if you've been with us in this series, you'll recognize this. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. And that's a phrase I think we need to keep coming back to to remind us it is an important idea in Ecclesiastes. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. That's the first solution to the curse of more. Remember that what you have is a gift. Now, I want to drill down on this because I think this can be profound from some of, for some of us in the room. If making your life about bigger, better, more, the next thing, etc., if that's not the answer, which I hope you know, Solomon's done a pretty good job of convincing that in chapter 5. If that's not the answer, then the first way that you repent of that more mindset is to open your eyes to what you have in your hands right now and recognize that those are gifts of God. It might not be as much as you want, it might not be as much as you think you deserve. It might not be as much as you used to have at some other point or what you hope to have in the future. But here's the thing. What you're holding right now has been given to you, not what's out there. What you're holding right now is gift. You can't enjoy what's right in front of you if your eyes are always on what's out there. That's the definition of more. The pursuit of more, seeking more in any area of your life will always rob you from gratitude and joy for the gifts that God has given you. It always will. So Solomon says, I think in these verses where he's going is, open your eyes and don't look out there. Look right here and see the gifts you've been given. Enjoy them. Allow the giver of the gifts to occupy, occupy you with gladness of heart as the years of your life go by. That's the solution to the curse of more. That's the first solution. That's the first answer. Remember that life is gift, not gain. Now, I want to give you one more solution. All right, so we'll do two. To get there, we need to look at the problem of more in the context of the whole Bible so now we want to step out of Solomon's shoes for a minute and, and, I, and I want to fast forward a little bit because Solomon did not have all the answers. We know a lot theologically that Solomon just didn't know at that point in time. So let's talk about what Jesus said about more. And from this, we're going to get our second solution to the curse of more. Jesus was constantly talking to his disciples about more. 
They, they came to him saying, you know, we want more influence. We want more prestige. We want more power. We want, want more money. And he was having to address this frequently. It's all throughout the Gospels. And so in his teaching and in his living, he redefines for human beings what this pursuit of more actually should look like. I would say he turns it completely upside down. And so all throughout Jesus' teaching, he's saying things like, you know, you've heard it said this, but I say that. Or, you know, according to the world's wisdom or the world's definition of success, it's this, but let me redefine it for you according to the way that it actually is in the kingdom of God. And one of the things he said about his own mission, Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think about this for a minute. You want to talk ladder of success? Okay, you know, wherever you are right now, you can look down at people and you can look up at people, but you know, you know who you're never going to look down on? God himself is at the very top. Can we all acknowledge that? Yet through the incarnation, what Jesus actually did was he went way down the ladder. Why did he go way down the ladder? To serve those that were below. That's the idea. That's what Jesus actually did in his life. So think about the way Paul expressed this. It's one of my favorite Verses Paul ever wrote, because I think it's so clear. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, is he talking about material, like literal coins and dollars and stuff there? He's talking about something far greater. He's saying God at the top of the food chain had everything, you know, has everything. Jesus is right there, the right hand of the Father, and he gave it all up to become poor, literally poor, and, and spiritually poor on that cross. As the Father turns his face away, as he bears our sins. Why did he do all that? So that you and I could become rich. What kind of wealth? Spiritual and relational wealth now with everything then, okay? When the new earth, we're going to get to enjoy all the fruits and beautiful things of that new earth. And even now, there is a wealth we have that people outside of Christ know nothing of. And then, Jesus invites his followers to live how he lived. He said, this is the way of the kingdom. I want you looking down at those below you, not up at those above you. I want you to have a servant's heart like me, Jesus says. That's the Christian life in a nutshell, right? Receive the wealth that is yours through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and then start serving those below you. You serve through your witness. You serve through your service. You fight for justice. You, you, you uh, uh, allow God's kingdom to be announced and tasted through you. Now, I want to give you a final illustration that's going to hopefully wrap all this up. There's one other significant body of water in Israel that's actually a lake, but it's called a sea. Anybody, anybody, anybody name it? Yeah, Sea of Galilee. Okay, like, you know, that's probably your first guess and you're right. All right. The Sea of Galilee, just like the Dead Sea, it's fed by the Jordan River, but that's where the similarities end. Take a look at some pictures. We'll put them on the screen. The Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a huge freshwater lake. It is a place of vibrancy and life. As you can see, it's beautiful. 
Israel's most significant fresh water source to this day is the Sea of Galilee. That's where they get their water. The Sea of Galilee literally sustains a nation. Literally. Now, I want you to see side by side comparison. The Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee. Dead Sea on your left, Sea of Galilee on your right. Here's the question I want you to think about. What makes the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee? There's only one difference. There's only one thing. One of them has an outlet. And the Dead Sea does not. The Sea of Galilee, let me show you one more map so that you can really understand this. The Sea of Galilee is up in the north, okay? So the headwaters of the Jordan River, you can't see it, but it's north of the Sea of Galilee. There are these springs that the water comes from. It flows down into the Sea of Galilee, but it doesn't keep it. It doesn't collect it and hoard it like the Dead Sea. It allows it to flow out of the south. So that Jordan River, you know, somewhere between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is where Jesus was baptized, where all kinds of wonderful things happen in the Jordan River. It flows down to the south. Still a fresh water river until it gets to the place of death, the Dead Sea. Why does it die in the Dead Sea? Because it has nowhere else to go. So it just sits and accumulates and evaporates. The Sea of Galilee, let's put the comparison back on the screen. The Sea of Galilee allows fresh water to flow through it. The Dead Sea hoards and accumulates and never gives. So while the first solution to the curse of more is to remember life is gift, not gain, the second solution is Become a conduit, not a container. Become a conduit, not a container. Men and women, we've got to look a lot more like the Sea of Galilee than we do the Dead Sea. Now, here's a penetrating question to ask yourself. It, it, it was penetrating for me this week as, as I asked myself this question. Does life flow through me or does it dead end with me? That's a hard question to answer honestly. Here's what we're called to do in Scripture over and over again. Take the gifts God has given you and imitate Jesus in gifting them to other people. That's what we're called to do. And what this illustration shows you is there's actually life found in that. Even though it goes against your human instincts, your human like, take me, I need it because I'm thirsty and hungry instincts. It goes against that. But that's actually where you'll find life. That's what Jesus was saying over and over and over and over. Now, here's the thing. I've got to say this really fast because we're going a bit long. The only way you're ever really going to allow life, resources, money, things to flow through you, really, is once you deeply understand what you've been given in Christ through the good news, through the gospel. And I don't mean just like, yeah, I accepted Christ when I was four years old. Yeah, that, that's great. I believe you're genuinely saved. Yet you need to allow the gospel to keep shaping you and keep forming you because the only way you're going to be able to have a life that you're giving yourself away, right? We want to give ourselves away here at Fellowship. The only way that you're going to do that is to understand what you've been given because only then can you stop seeking fullness in other places. That's how the gospel transforms you. It allows you to see that the blessings of God, yes, are for your sustenance and yes, for your provision, but they're never for your satisfaction. Blessings of God, apart from Christ, are never for your satisfaction. They're to sustain you, provide for you, and then they're to flow through you as you serve the one and imitate the one who does satisfy you. That is the Christian life. That's what you do with your more 
if you want to have life. So here's how we're going to close this morning. Um, Before we sing a song, I want to tell you about a very practical way that we're inviting us as a church to live this message out. Because remember, we don't just hear. We hear and obey. Those things go together. So there's a lot of application. I encourage you personally just to think about what would God call you to do with your more. But I want to talk about something for our body. Last fall in November, we were walking through a series on Acts. And and we we brought something to you all because we saw an example over and over of the church sharing all that they had. That was one of the hallmarks of the early church, if you remember that. And so we introduced what we call the sharing board. And we're bringing it back, okay? It was out for about a month before. We're bringing it back. Here's a picture. It's right out there as you walk out the door, kind of in the center of that atrium area. Here's how this works. There's a little table with some cards on the right. If you have a need... And I hope your pride won't prevent you from jotting this, you know, filling out a need. If you have a need, we want you to write that need on that little piece of paper and put it up there. It, it could be, you know, there, there's some bills that, you know, you're out of work or you don't have enough work. You're underemployed, you're unemployed. Could be a medical expense you can't pay. Could be some other need. I can't figure out how to get child care for my kid. Is there anyone that can help me in any kind of shape or way? I, I don't know what your need will be. We're going to invite you just to write down the need, post it on that board. Your need goes on the front. Your contact information goes on the back. If you have resources that you can serve this body with, if you can be a conduit of blessing, we're going to encourage you to go by that board before you leave, read some of those, pull one of them off, and then meet that need as you're able to. If you can't end up meeting that need, put it back next week. This board's going to be in that spot every Sunday through the month of July. It's also going to be in our reception area in our office Monday to Friday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. If you want to come by on your lunch break or some other time and take a look at it. I can't tell you how many stories we heard from last fall from this. Most of the stories I heard were from the givers. They were the ones that were blessed. No surprise. But I also heard a lot from the receivers who said, man, I never actually tangibly felt a body of Christ loving me in such a real way until this person met that need. A stranger. There's stories of people connecting together, getting to know each other through this board. It's not managed by us. This is something organically for the body of Christ. When I say us, I mean the staff. This is for us, the body, to engage together. So I want to pray for that. I want to pray for you. We're going to sing a song after my prayer and be out. Our Father, thank you for giving us your word. Every single time we open it, it challenges us. It encourages us. It speaks to our issues. It helps us in places that we are stuck. And we so often take it for granted. May it not be with this text. May it be, Father, that your people who are sitting in this room, listening online, or who will listen to this later, that your people would hear your word and obey your word. Would you release us from what is actually some oppressive tendencies that we all have to grasp for more and more and more. Would you open our eyes to gratitude and joy in what you've given us? And would we find life in allowing those things to flow through us as conduits to people who need? Would you bless even this sharing board as we engage it over the next month or so? May it be an expression of our value of generosity May it bring life to those who receive and those who give. May it all be for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.